Hi, good evening and welcome to the ZA Dev Chat podcast. Tonight on the panel we've got Len. How's it, Len? Hey, how's it, everybody? And we're joined by Joshua Lewis. How's it, Joshua? Hey, good evening, good evening, good evening. Do you mind uh, giving the listeners a quick uh, background? Uh, sure, not a problem. Um, so I'm currently up, uh, very proud to have just joined uh, NReality as an associate. Um, in reality, uh, in case you don't know, is a software engineering consultancy. We do uh, coaching, development, and workshop. Um, and uh, very proud to, to join a, a really cool company. Um, I also lecture part-time at VET uh, for the Joburg Center for Software Engineering CPD course and for uh, MN students. I lecture at postgraduate level and that's, uh, on a software development course, uh, mainly around uh, object-oriented programming. Um, and I've been in the industry for just over 10 years, the majority of which uh, as a developer, and uh, the last two years in a bit as a developer coach. Um, yeah, that's my story. So, Joshua, we invited you tonight to talk about testing. Um, I guess we need to narrow it down, specifically programmatic testing of software. Do you mind giving us a little, like, bit of background definition what you think that means programmatic testing um so i, I like that we were talking about progr- uh, programmatic testing um maybe another term we could use is uh, kind of automated testing and i would probably say uh, programmatic testing is basically just using code to validate other code um so instead of a human exercising uh piece of uh, some software, we get other software to exercise the same software. Um, and just a, a note on terminology, I think, which is quite important. And developers talk about testing and we, we understand it uh, as kind of automated testing. So unit testing, integration testing, that kind of, uh, that kind of testing. Um, but I've been hanging around uh, some professional developers, especially context-driven developers quite a lot lately. And they make an, an important distinction between um, what we would call testing, they call checking, and testing is something that only a human can do, um, and that's really just getting different information about a software system. And the, one of the interesting differences is is checking or automated testing really deals with known, whereas testing or manual testing is really trying to surface unknowns. Um, could, could, could you give us an example of that? Uh, it's difficult for me. Um, I'm still trying to understand the space, um, but there, there are quite a few, uh, quite a few kind of context-driven testers uh, in Joburg, in South Africa, and, and uh, maybe a cool follow-up podcast could be um, with one of them. Um, I've got a list of people I can uh, submit if, you, if you're interested. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, but I think it's more around um, kind of giving a, a confidence level. Um, I would imagine things a bit like uh, user experiences, user, uh, user journeys um, would, would be part of it. Um, but I'm still very much kind of a newcomer into, into that field. So uh, I don't feel confident yet um, in talking too much about it. Um, still learning in, in that sphere. Okay, great. So maybe let's just uh, leave that one and, and dive into... What, what do we call it now? Programmatic testing? Is that okay for a word to go forward with this podcast? Yeah, I really like that uh, characterization, programmatic testing. Um, 
I think it, it incorporates kind of the automated part of it, and it also incorporates that it's we're using software to to test our software, um, which I quite like. Makes it quite clear. Okay, so could you just define what that means in a practical sense? Like, is that stuff that programmers do on a day-to-day basis? Is there, you know, people called testers? Give us a bit of an intro to that that field. So it's there's kind of a, a range of types of programmatic testing you can do. What uh, kind of starting at what is typically called unit testing, and what can be called developer tests, which are uh, very small, typically micro, uh, quite small grained, uh, also called micro tests that developers write frequently while they're writing code. And um, let's just uh, take a take a step back. What what I would kind of characterize as testing is we start off with we have a system, a system under test. We have some kind of expected behavior, and a, a, a test is really just well, this is what I what have let me exercise my system, see what I get, and compare my actual result to my predicted or expected result. Um, if those results are the same, then we say that test has passed. If the results are different, then we say that pass, that test has failed. Um, and it's really just is the system behaving as I expected. Um, it's really as as not any more complicated than that from a conceptual level. Um, where the complications come in is, for example, setting up expectations or setting up how actually exercising a system, um, et cetera, et cetera. So having said that, there's a range of testing where developers would typically write uh, small uh, micro tests or developer tests multiple times a day. Um, through to integration tests, through to automated system tests, and user-level acceptance criteria. So for quite a while now, there's been this model uh, floating around called the, the pyramid level of, of, of testing, where uh, typically you have lots and lots of very fine-grained, fast-running uh, developer tests, uh, quite a lot fewer integration tests, which are typically harder to set up and, and run a little bit slower. but more of the system, especially integrating with uh, third-party components, and then you'd have very few kind of user-level acceptance tests, acceptance tests or system tests. Um, there are also other types of tests, property or type-based testing, which I'm very much newcomer, kind of haven't delved into that that much. Um, it would be another interesting topic for a, for a podcast. And you also get characterization tests and smoke tests, and there are various others, but. I try and concentrate mainly on functional tests. So is the system behaving as we expect it to? Um, and typically unit tests, integration tests, and, and user acceptance tests fall under that, that kind of category. Um, yeah, so that's uh, pretty much our RC testing. It's really just, is, this, is the system behaving as I expect? And using code to, to answer that question would be a programmatic test. Okay, great. Maybe you can give us a bit of the history of testing. Like, so people created computer languages. When did they decide that they need to test these things? So I'm unfortunately not an expert in this. Um, I have tried to to delve a little bit into it um, when I've been preparing for some conference talks, etc. I've tried to find a little bit of the history. Um, from what I know, it goes back pretty much to the beginning of, of programming. Um, and an interesting, I'll, I'll, I'll give one anecdote that I read about in Kent Beck's uh, test-driven development book. 
Um, you know, everybody these days kind of says, oh, Ken Beck invented this driven development. But the way Ken tells it in his book is that he didn't invent it. When he was a child, his father was a programmer who programmed with punch cards. And the way his father explained programming to him was you define the expected output of your program for a given, sorry, I, I need to go back another step. I was remiss in my explanation of, of what a test is. So I explained that we have a system under test and we have an expected output and an actual output. Now, what I neglected to mention is that each of those expected and actual output pairs corresponds to a specific input. So for different inputs, we have a, a predicted output and an actual output, and that defines the test. For this input, I expect this output. For input X, I expect output X. For input Y, I expect output Y, et cetera, et cetera. So coming back to, to, to what Kent writes in his book, basically says the way his father explained programming is, well, these are my inputs, and I define what my outputs for those inputs are, and then I write my program to satisfy those, um, which is actually test-driven development. So Kent, from what I understand, kind of considers that he maybe rediscovered test-driven development, but certain, certainly didn't invent it. Um, and the term unit test, from what I, what I could uncover um, in my search in the past, kind of goes back to, if I'm not mistaken, the, the 50s and the 60s, around, around about that time. Um, so that's, that's what I know of the, of the history of unit testing. Um, in terms of my journey, I remember coming across either second or third year at university in software one or two, coming across that, this idea of a unit test, and I just remember my mind being blown at kind of the simplicity of this idea that, hey, let's use software to test our software. Let's write code to test our code. And it just kind of like is really obvious, but you know, I'd already been programming for a couple of years before then I started programming in school, and that was the first time that that had kind of been mentioned to me. So I, uh, for me, that was like a, a kind of a seminal moment in my software development career. Okay. And, and for you, it made a lot of sense to just to write those kind of tests. And uh, did you write the tests first, or, or do you use them afterwards to verify what you've done? Uh, so in the, in, the, in the kind of beginning, it was always test after. Uh, my, my test first journey... Um, started uh, in various ways, in various shapes and forms, quite a long time ago. So I remember uh, about 10 years ago, I was working at an online poker startup. And part of our team was a professional poker player, a domain expert in the state. Um, and we were, I remember working on the rules for things like um, pot limit Texas Hold'em. You know, what are the rules that govern... The, the bedding around pot limit. Um, and then they're not really that, that simple. I don't remember them now, but they're, they're not really that simple. And I remember going through this exercise with spreadsheets and, and wikis, uh, trying to communicate with this domain experts across the ocean. You know, okay, if, if this is my pot and this is my limit, uh, then what are my available bets? And if I bet this, then what does my pot become? What does my next pot become? was my next bet to become. And without right. really knowing it, without really kind of formalizing it and without automating it, which is which is a very important part of the equation, we were actually kind of doing some form of test-driven development. We were doing some kind of, of test first. Now, in that particular case, it wouldn't have been too difficult to, to actually automate it. So um, what I call, well, I would say we, we were doing the spirit of test-driven development. 
um, specifically specification by example and creating executable specifications, um, which for me is, is really the main part of test-driven development. Cool. The, the, it strikes me that there's certain domains that are very amenable to testing. So I mean, you mentioned like you know, some sort of card game there. Um, and, and it always struck me that, always had this thought that it seems kind of tedious to write the individual tests. In those domains, isn't it better to just write a program to generate all those tests? If you're following what I'm well, saying? Uh, I would agree with you. However, really our, our problem was that we didn't, we couldn't, we couldn't agree on the rules. Our domain expert wasn't able to give us a formula or an equation or an algorithm to come up with the rules that would govern betting. And um, so, yes, I agree with you. If those rules are known, then easy, to, easy enough to, to generate tests. But if we can't even agree on the rules which govern what those what the algorithm is, then we can't automate it. We can't, sorry, we can't generate it. And right, so, so in a way, you're using the test to capture the requirements? Exactly. And that's, for me, that is the, the, the number one and most important reason we, that I do test-driven development. So um, we're jumping the gun a little bit in, in terms of, of diving into, into TDD, but really, for me, that's, that's exactly the whole point, an executable specification. Right. This is South Africa. We've got no rules here, man. <laughs> Um, so I, I wrote a blog post a couple of months ago on why I do TDD, and it's it's kind of a bullet point list of the reasons that I have, and it's my the current snapshot of my thinking. Um, uh, and really, the reason I wrote it is because I do test driven development for for what seems to be different reasons that other people do. So a lot of people talk about test-driven development as a design exercise, uh, as a design tool. Um, my, my prerogative on that is, sorry, my, well, my view on that is, it is a design tool, however, I can get this, generally after a while of doing test-driven development, I can design my code to be as testable as if I wrote a test first. Um, so you can, in my opinion, you can get the same design benefits without testing first. You can design in that way and test after and get all the design benefits. Um, I also need to make it crystal, crystal clear that test-driven development is not at all about testing. Um, the test is really just the feedback mechanism. When, when we're talking about uh, a test being a comparison of a, an expected output compared to an actual output, that, that's all that the test is telling us. Um, yes, the, out, the actual output is the same or different to the expected output. But really, the value in, in, in test first for me is, is not so much the test per se, but it's what is the expectation? What is the input and the expected output? Um, because as you mentioned, for example, with, with, a, with a card system, we are now capturing the expectations, the specification of our system as executable code. Um, and that's a really, that really nice phrase that captures that is executable specification. Yeah, and I, I guess that gives you a very clear goal as a programmer, that I got to get this program to to kind of meet that specification. Absolutely, but it actually the the value, um, and and in a lot of situations, I'd even say an even more valuable thing about uh, test first is it it crystallizes. Sorry, one, it's a tool for collaboration. So 
The problem with written requirements, written specifications, is it's very easy to very easy to misinterpret, very open to interpretation. So if we have a specification in natural language, and let's say we have a, a team of, of four people, we have a product owner slash business analyst, we've got a, a, a front-end graphic designer, we've got a standard developer. Now there's four people involved in there, very easy to get four different interpretations of a natural language specification. So the first way in which in which test first is very valuable is it gives us unambiguous specification. So you know that computers are um, very, very stupid and only take can only do things um, that we tell them very, very explicitly. So the thinking is if you can specify the behavior of a given system in, in, in such a detail that a computer can validate uh, whether it's behaving correctly, then it's detailed enough that it's not open to interpretation. Okay, I'm, I'm just going to have to interrupt you here because this is something where I always struggle a bit. Um, when you're writing those specifications, are you talking about like method level or testing through the UI? Like, because I guess the specification assumes so much already exists. So, so that's that's a that's a really great question because um, this is where I have uh, somewhat controversial views. And surpri surprisingly enough, I know I'm not really known for for controversial views. Um, but this is this is a place where where I'm trying to I've been trying to question a lot of the dogma for, for about the last year of. The last year, I've been doing a talk at a couple of community meetups and, and conferences, and it's really around the value of, of your of your programmatic test. And it essentially comes down to that question: Are we talking about it at the method level? We're we talking about the user level. Um, and really, my experience, my my opinion right now, is test from the outside in, specify from the outside in, um, and the kind of the ideal for me at this point is user level functional test. User level functional specification. Um, because sort of coming in from the user interface, clicking on certain things, making it sure something comes back, that kind of thing. Absolutely, as as far as possible. So there, there are certain contexts where that becomes quite difficult. So uh, graphical user interfaces generally quite difficult. However, I must tell you that that the state of that art is is changing very rapidly. So we've had tools like uh, fitness. Uh, Water, Watten, um, we've got a Selenium. You know, these tools are not new. They've been around for, for a number of years now. Um, and just to give you a brief kind of um, overview, um, so I've just left DSTV Digital Media where I was a developer coach for just over two years. Um, and DDM do all the websites and all the apps for, for, for DSTV. So everything from kind of Idol's website to DSTV.com to DSTV Now, websites and apps, et cetera, et cetera. And part of their, their kind of test, testing policy is that all websites have to have automated tests. Now, not all functionality needs to have automated tests, but they're at the level where, where testers in every single team are writing user-level functional specifications that interact with a website. So it, it either loads pages, clicks on buttons, or it issues HTTP requests, et cetera, et cetera. And if you think about it, if, if we disregard some of the graphical elements, really, when we're talking about a website, it's just HTTP in, HTTP out. So 
if I issue this HTTP request, I'm expecting this uh, response with this HTML back. Um, we could, and it doesn't even, not saying that they're, they're testing really uh, complicated flows, but for example, um, if I'm logged in, then I should see, then I should get this HTML back, and if I'm not logged in, then I should get different HTML back. Um, so that's pretty much at the user level, and it's not hard to specify, and it's not really not hard to automate either. Um, and the same thing's happening with the apps. Um, there's tools, I think the one they're using is called Appium, and that actually goes, uh, you know, it starts up an emulator, clicks on buttons, um, and does, does validations over there. So, so now I just want to tie that back to your idea earlier around using the test as a specification, because more often than not, I don't yet have the user interface that I'm trying to test. In that case, how do I put such a test together? I mean, if, if I have to detail like the user interface elements that I'm trying to build, I'm, I guess I, I'm, I'm sensing a kind of catch-22 here. I don't yet have the thing trying to test, but I'm trying as the test as a specification for the thing I'm trying to build. So the only problem you might have there is that you can't actually run the test, but you can still create the test and you can still create the specification. Um, so, so two things there. So one is, imagine if we have those four people around the table, we can say, okay, when I click on, on this button, then, then I should get this response back. Now, designer, the, the designer and the test are going to, okay, well, we don't know what it's going to look like, but let's just say there's a div with this ID and um, we're going to have some JavaScript that uh, issues a certain HTTP request when I, when I click the button, when I click the div, etc., etc., etc. So we don't need to specify everything up front. We just need to specify certain interfaces. Um, and for me, that's why, why Test First is a really good collaboration tool. The second thing is, why don't you have a user interface? What value are you what value are you getting by testing at a finer level, testing within the system? Um, and this is kind of the dogma that, I, that I've been trying to, to challenge lately. So I noticed something a few years ago, and that is, especially among uh, the TDD community, there's a tendency among testers to grow systems from inside out. Um, and this is kind of if we go back, if I go back uh, two, three years ago, um, that's what I was doing. Um, they got, the example I always use is uh, the first code retreat I went to when I looked at Conway's Game of Life, I thought, ah, oh, I need a cell. So I started, let's create specification tests for a cell and kind of grew the system from the inside out. The problem with that is at the end of that code retreat, I, I could not prove that I had a working implementation of Conway's Game of Life. I had a, a maybe a cell that could work really nicely, but so what? Now, if, if we imagine that we have users that are prepared to pay for um, a working implementation of Conway's Game of Life, then a test that proves something about a cell is absolutely useless. It has no value and it's waste. However, I had a conversation uh, probably just over two years ago now um, with a colleague and he said, well, he approached it from a different way. He approached it, well, if we imagine that a user would specify Conway's Game of Life is for this uh, given generation zero pattern, um, what would generation one look like and what would generation two look like and what would generation three look like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how he specified his system. And 
kind of got me thinking and I, and I, and I redid my game of life implementation using that kind of specification. And I got a, got to a totally different place. Um, designed completely different from my, my nicely designed, got a cell and I've got a neighbor, a neighboring cell fund, et cetera, et cetera. However, the main difference was I could now prove that I had a working implementation. Taking back to the business world, if you can specify from a user level, um, once your tests start passing, you can start making money. I just want to point out with regards to the user uh, testing, especially of HTML, those tests can be extremely brittle. And I think a lot of people um, potentially bump their heads um, with Selenium and they specify their elements like too specific and then the designer comes and reworks the page or changes the interactions and then the whole thing falls on its head and all your tests break and you swear you're never going to use selenium again <laughs> but um what we used to do in the past is we have like we designate a css class name prefix that's purely ever for testing so if we've got you know somebody filling in a form uh, you could uh, fill in the, like, let's say they want to log in. You can just add a class QA-login-form that you can get a hold on easily and then find the inputs by name, fill them in, um, and submit the form. And same for any other element and interaction that people need to work with. So then by splitting those namespaces, the one site that the designer can CSS and target and, and build and change and refactor, and on the other side, you grab these handles in the DOM just with this like dedicated prefix, that goes a long way um, for saving um, those kind of problems. And then to push that a bit further is depending on your testing tool, there's this pattern uh, called the page object uh, design pattern. And I can't remember where that's from. Kevin would have known. Um, but it's basically just designed little classes and objects that just define elements on your page. And then in your test, you simply drive everything out using page objects instances as opposed to getting a handle in the DOM directly. So if something really does change, you've got one little class that you can go update, one little object to change, and then all the tests that rely on that behavior just simply carry on working again. So it's definitely possible to drive out those kind of tests before you have like a designed interface. You can start mocking out some basic HTML and just replace it when the time comes right. You can, you know, let the other people on the team know that these are the styles that matter or the CSS classes that matter, like keep using them. Absolutely. I've never done something like that personally, but it sounds like a, like a really good approach. Just want to kind of add to that is, is you don't even need to, from, from a request point of view, let's take the example of filling in a form, you wouldn't even need to use HTML for that. You could just specify for this HTTP request, um, which would include the form parameters. So you don't even need the, to actually build a web page for that. And, and the, the, the kind of, there's, there's always a balance between specifying as much of the system as possible versus making the tests as maintainable as possible, as easy to understand and as easy to specify as possible. So, so generally those two things are kind of in balance. Um, and there, there's a, a, a cost benefit kind of uh, curve, we could call it, or, or a turn on investment curve we could talk about. And kind of the point of, of, of my, the talks that I've been doing is really just to, to make people aware, you know, question, where are you on that curve? Where, what is your context dictating? Because 
your context will dictate things like what is your investment, what is your return. Um, and the example I, I generally give is, you know, if you're a, a startup with three months worth of, of capital, you need to start making revenue by the end of three months. Otherwise, you're not going to have any tests or code to maintain. Um, and that changes things quite a bit compared to if you're working at a bank that's 120 years old um, and you're working on a code base that isn't expected to, to, to change very often or change very slowly. And practice, um, generally, code changes faster than we think it's going to, even at 120-year-old banks. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I've seen that as well, um, especially startup space. You need to move fast and break things. <laughs> and I think with the right level of tests at the HTTP layer, with just the right amount of like integration points all getting hit, it's the the best bang for the buck. But like you say, it's a balance. If those tests also, when they do fail, can take a lot of time to figure out why they failed. So, at, but then again, it also... I guess forces you to make sure your system can be instrumented. You know, you've got decent logging or exception handling or something. So when it does break, it must be crystal clear in the test what happens. And that same message would probably end up going to your error reporting system. Um, that's just kind of my sentiment around that stuff. I don't, the, the very low unit tests, like method level tests, I, I don't like them because it's, do you start refactoring your code because yeah, the test is the safety net or do you never change the code because you feel bad you've got a test um, for it? And I guess that kind of leads me to another question around deleting tests. Is that a good thing to do? Should you ever be deleting tests? Um, absolutely. If, if the test is not giving you any more information, delete it, especially if it's a lower level test that, as you mentioned, uh, will get in the way of refactoring. Um, and isn't giving you, and you have high level tests that are giving you the same information, then uh, my opinion, absolutely delete them. The other reason, uh, well, the other time where it's really good to delete tests is when your requirements change. So if you've got a test specifying certain behavior, um, and that behavior is no longer valid, then delete tests because they're not serving any purpose. Um, and, and Kenneth, you, you, you raise a few good points there that I just want to, uh, I want to touch on. Um, the first of all, the lower level that a, a lower level a, a test is, the more tightly coupled it is to the implementation that satisfies that test. As you say, when it comes to, to refactoring, um, very low level tests become a pain. Not only do, do they, do they, be, and the reason they become a pain is because now there, there's a sunk cost fallacy, there's more code that we need to change, and it's, it's often easier just to, oh, you know, it, um, I don't want to feel, I don't feel like changing the test as well as the code. I'm just going to, to leave it, uh, as it is, um, and not go through refactoring. So I've, I've kind of where I'm at the moment is, is I try and test as far outside as possible. And my current thinking, I've got a, a hobby project uh, called Lend to Me, which is basically an app which allows you to search your friends' personal libraries and, uh, borrow books from them. Um, and all the code is open source. It's on my, my GitHub profile, which I'll add to the, to the pics for the week. And if you look at the tests, so I've kind of built the server, I've built the server first. And the idea, kind of my, my pint idea is, well, I'll, I'll publish an API and, and trying to get people to write clients for my API. Um, 
And I've specified the API purely as HTTP requests and response pairs. So if you give me this HTTP request um, in this context, so you may have heard of, of a structure called given when then. So it's really nice framing for, for tests given a certain context or uh, starting conditions. When I exercise my system in a certain way, then I expect these results. Um, and I've specified the, the, the API as um, given a blank slate if these requests are issued, um, which puts my system in a certain state. When I issue the specific request, then I'm expecting one, this response back. And for these uh, queries, for these gets, I'm expecting these responses back as well. Um, just to give you an idea that there's currently about 37, 38 tests in that code base, um, one of which is not functional. It's just testing my dependency injection container setup. All those tests test at the API level. They use a live Postgres uh, database. The schema is dropped and recreated for every test case and then dropped at the end of the test case as well. It's using an Owen test server, so it actually exercises the system at an HTTP level. And it's also using an embedded event store client. And those 36, 37 tests run under two minutes or so. Um, so in that code base, they really I, I don't feel the need for any anything, any tests at a, at a lower level um, because I'm getting all the information I need from those tests. However, if a test fails, as you mentioned earlier, sometimes it makes it harder to, to try to diagnose where the problem is. And one of the ways I try and mitigate against that is having a very, very small um, stack for each, for each feature. Um, so I'm using C a pattern called CQRS. So typically each feature is encapsulated in a command handler and a, and a domain model. Um, so the amount of code that goes into each feature, one is in one, generally in, in between two or three classes. Um, and it's not that hard to find out where, when things go wrong, it's not too hard to find out where, just because it's a pretty flat structure, you could call it like that. Um, so there are ways to, to, to mitigate against it. Um, but I'm, you know, I used to be very much in the, in the have a unit test for every class and mock all its dependencies kind of camp about two or three years ago. And I'm kind of exploring the other side of that spectrum. So I may have gone a little bit overboard, but so far with this particular code base, I'm still pretty happy and I don't miss any lower level tests. I must say the CQS and event sourcing code, I feel also it's, it's way easier to test, so you don't need too many lower tests because you've got those predefined actors. Like you, you, it's almost obvious which part's responsible for what. So when a failure comes, it's really simple to track down. So in our first CQRS event sourcing system we built, we what we did is over the HTTP level, we would file off our test, but then mock out the entire event store and basically just test that the commands were run with the you know, with all the correct uh, property set from the request. And then we'd have separate tests that also uses a fake event store and we would build up the aggregates and with all kinds of different events and test denormalizers and, and all that kind of stuff. And it worked well, but it was a lot to do. And the second system that we built in that style, we just went like tell with it, HTTP level, fire in the requests, and it was still such a breeze. Like we had no issues testing it like that. Yeah. Um... 
So one of the things I like about CQRS is it, it makes it very easy to reason about your program, about your code. And that's, for me, that's like a sign of a good pattern of a good architecture is, oh, well, you know, we've got, we've got very, very tightly predefined um, components of the system. Yes, it can be restrictive at times, but um, in my experience, I haven't had too much of an issue um, with that in terms of being restricted by that. So in, in just in terms of taking your experience, I've, I've tried to go one step further and I actually don't have any mocks. I, to the extent that I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm running my, all my tests against the live Postgres server. And that's, in, that's including in my, my continuous integration. So for the lend to me code base, I've, I've got a kind of continuous delivery pipeline. So uh, I push to the GitHub origin. Um, my uh, team city instance on my virtual private server picks it up, builds the code, runs the unit test, deploys it um, on, live onto the server. Um, and uh, if I remember correctly, the, the those thirty six functional tests run in like a minute and a half on my on my team city instance. So even running a a against a live Postgres server. I'm getting still getting very fast feedback, um, which is one of the just well not justification, but one of the kind of reasons why people uh, use the pyramid as a as a as a good model is developers want really fast feedback while they're, they're while they're writing code, and it's not always easy to achieve that with integration tests and system tests. But I think we're starting to get to the point with it with a tooling where you can start testing further and further outside the system and still maintain that very fast feedback. You set it up quite nicely for us there. How does testing like form part of um, a CI/CD workflow? I mean, to me, it's the cornerstone of it. It can't happen without it. But I'd, I'd like to hear your take on it. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't really experienced um, any substantial deployments of, of continuous delivery, which is which is a bit of a pity. Um, but I imagine, you know, if you're at a at a at a Facebook or a Google or a or a Flickr, where you're deploying um, tens, hundreds, thousands of times a day, um, with a very kind of compressed deployment pipeline, then you need to be pretty sure that you haven't broken anything major. Um, and and I think that's part of the driver around with the, the improvement in the tooling is, you know, is this need for we don't want we want to be able to deploy as many times as we like um, and not compromise on quality or user experience or, or reputation or any of those things. Um, and again, that's where, you know, that's where programmatic testing, I think, is really important. You, know, you, need, to have, you have, need to have a good suite of tests, but also I think you need, there's, there's a balance. You might not be able to, to, to kind of have a test for every, every single thing that you might want to have a test for. Um, but it's a pretty principle, you know, what 20% of our tests are going to give us 80% of the coverage that we're looking for. Uh, and especially, you know, if we, if we start looking at the, the typical examples of how much of software is not used, then you can start to see, well, we actually don't need that much coverage to get a high level of confidence in what we're deploying. Yeah, and if you want to be able to deploy within like five minutes from pushing up code that also means you can't have the most elaborate test suite in the world with 110 percent coverage of every permutation of your code absolutely 
Um, but then I think you're starting to to touch on the realm of of software design. And how can I be sure that if I touch this piece of code that I can guarantee that I haven't touched the rest of the 90% of the code? And if I can guarantee that, it means I don't need to run those tests. That's a bit of a, a contradiction because part of the value of um, automated testing is, you know, part of the promise is they're cheap and quick to run, so we run them more, more and more frequently. But you raise a good point that if we if we don't necessarily want to take the time um, to run uh, uh, a huge suite, then one potential way of doing that is to 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 make sure that. Um, if I can guarantee that with this change, I haven't touched the rest of the code, well, then I don't need to to run those tests. I think there are other strategies like parallel, parallelization, um, microservice uh, architecture, which you could is a probably a, is a long way to to guaranteeing um, very small locality of changes. You know, if if we've got lots of microservices and I change one, then probably a good chance that I don't need to test the others. Um, I have fallen into the trap though, where I, I've, uh, you know, an anecdote I like to tell people is I, I once sent some poor soul about 3,000 SMSs over a weekend because I deployed something on a Thursday or a Friday. Um, and there was a bug in the relationship communication between two uh, modules, kind of microservice type modules. Um, and because of that bug, I sent 3,000 SMSs. So, um, Caveat emptor, I should say. Mm. I want to just ask a question about like running tests in production, like as a sort of preemptive measure. Have you ever come across something like that? And if if so, what do you what do you think of that as a practice? Um, I'm I'm actually disappointed to say that I haven't come across it that much. For me, if you specifying upfront, um, especially things silly things like um authentication um if we look at an example at dstv for example if i uh, click on this page then a video should start playing which may or may not be that easy to to automate but pretty cool thing to add into your monitoring right so yes we're monitoring a whole bunch of stuff are the ports open etc cetera, etc cetera, but it would be pretty cool if we could include those functional type um tests and things like performance tests if we could include that in, in our monitoring tools, for me, that's a, that's a, would be a really cool thing to have. And it's just, you know, you've kind of, you've got this test already, especially if it's something like an HTTP level, then uh, be pretty cool to include that in a monitoring yeah, suite. Agreed, Unfortunately, yeah. I haven't come across it too often, um, but I don't think it should be that difficult to do, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. As, as part of your sort of normal system health check, can people log in? Can people buy products? Whatever the site does. And that you could almost have it as a piece of dummy data in the system, like a known like testing account that runs end-to-end in production. I, I quite like that idea, I must say. Absolutely. Um, maybe, there's a, maybe there's a gap for a product there. <laughs> I think one way to start going down that path, Len, is... is um, the smoke testing. I mean, uh, Josh, you mentioned it at the beginning of the list, part of your list of tests. Uh, we did that with um, some microservices, which worked quite well. Like, so post-deployment, we just run a few call commands against it to see whether they're firing, they're giving the kind of responses we expect. And then if they do, we flip the load balancer and that they start accepting traffic. 
And I know the guys from Discourse, they also had some, like a year ago or so, they had some catastrophic deployment where they deployed faulty code and it, like the whole of all their hosted discourses went down and they rolled back and then they started building in these smoke tests to make sure that before they flip the switch as well, that everything works. Because they also had the same kind of fears that no matter how good your normal tests are, like the moment it encounters production, like stuff can go yeah. sour. So that might be an easy way. It's like just read only traffic. And then you can start figuring out how you fake a transaction and all that kind of stuff that you got, like a financial transaction. One of the things we're starting to build into our Ansible scripts is on on servers that have HTTP endpoints, just have like a sort of canary service, like a slash status or something like that, that you can ping to A, the server's up. And then the second thing is having uh, an endpoint where you can get stats out of the application, like what's the exception count and those kinds of things that you could also then add in to, like, I guess, more monitoring stuff. But I think the line becomes blurry, as Joshua was saying, between testing and monitoring quite often. Because especially if you start to deploy quite a lot, you want those tests to be running, you know, as often as you can get them to run in production, because that's where you really want to know that things are still working. So for me, that, that's a really obvious, um, high impact, low effort. Like, you know, that the discourse example, shouldn't we know before our users when stuff is not working? Shouldn't we be the first to know? Yeah. And it's really, you know, the tooling we've got today, I really don't think that the vast majority of use cases are that difficult. Exactly, yeah. And, and the exception count, those kind of performance counters, I think also, again, pretty easy to implement and, re and really valuable. Um, why can't we extend that to the functional testing? Agreed. And Agreed. again, if, if, if we kind of extend the metaphor around representing value with our tests, um, the value a user gets, the user gets value when they execute the software. So it's no good saying when we deployed it, then it executed correctly. You know, if, if, that software is not in an executable or correctly functioning state that any time a user wants to use it, then it's not providing value. Yeah, or, or, even, or even worse, Joshua, like we, we have this weird test set up and all the tests passed, but there's some like variation in production that, you know, of course we're not going to see it because the tests aren't happening in production. I mean, I've seen that before as well. You know, it's a, it works in my machine kind of, kind of syndrome. Absolutely, and I think that's that's where the difference between checking and testing starts coming in. Um, is that did we anticipate that flow? Um, and, you know, the test. If we go back to kind of manual testing, a tester's job not necessarily to break the code. It's can we find a way to break the code, and what does that information mean to a product owner? Is it kind of oh, okay? Well, that's kind of obscure enough that I'm com comfortable to deploy. Uh, with it or hold on, that's, that's pretty major. Um, but the key is, can we anticipate it? Is it a known or is it an unknown? Um, but I, I quite like that use case. Um, you know, oh, with the, all these exceptions coming up, maybe we need some extra, extra programmatic tests. And then using tests as well to, to isolate the part of the system where things are going bad, like deep inside the shopping basket checkout somewhere. Sure, I'm getting an exception, you know, so the page has gone off. I know something's not right, but if I could just list like the actual tests, 
that are failing, like in production, I think that would be super useful as well. A nice middle man there might be, like what I've traditionally done is you've got Sentry or Airbrake or whatever error reporting system is when one of those exceptions start coming in, you don't stop writing a test until you get the exact same exception. And it's kind of like when you said, a lot of time it's got to do with weird state in your database or something bizarre happened and you've got to build this ridiculous thing to get the same thing, but then at least you can get down to fixing the problem. But yeah, it would be really, really nice. Yeah, to, to sort of help, help diagnose that sentry error, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So, so wouldn't it be cool if we could kind of Almost like a, the opposite of an exponential fallback. Like, oh, I'm getting this exp I'm getting this this exception. Let me start testing automatically, deeper and deeper, or kind of finer and finer grained, but somehow without human input, to kind of triangulate and and hone in on on where exactly this this. Yeah, because like what I see happening a lot, and and this is kind of you know when like a rant I could go off on, but I'll restrain myself, is. Uh, companies cloning their production database to kind of do testing against. And, and I always question the value of that. Like, why not then just do the testing straight away in production? <laughs> oh, I love that. So I totally agree with you. Um, and that's kind of one of my, one of my pet peeves, or, or not pet peeve, but something that's, that's kind of really caused me a bit of grief in the past is if we, if we go come back to the definition of a test is we've got a system under test and for, for a specific input we're expecting a specific output. What people don't realize is that dependencies are implicit inputs. So yes, I have an explicit input which is my interaction with the system, but any, any and all dependencies of my system are implicit inputs. And one of the, re one of the, 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 the reasons why I like to test outside the system is if we think about the pyramid, really what we're doing is just changing the boundaries of, of our system. And if we extend the system to include, for example, a database, then that's just giving us more information and more confidence. But what that means is if we're using, if we're using clone production data as an input to our test, we are not in control of what that data is. We are not specifying the full um, system under test. We're relying on what happened to be in there at the time we took that snapshot. Yeah. Now, it may be reliable and it may be uh, fit for purpose, um, but in my in my experience, almost all the time you you contaminate or you you pollute the test. We're specifying our explicit inputs, but we're not specifying our implicit inputs. And if that's the case, then we absolutely get we're getting actually no information about whether our system is functioning correctly or not. Correct. Yeah. Um, be because we 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 haven't defined all our input, so we, you know it's 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 rubbish in, rubbish out. We we we're fooling ourselves effectively. Agreed. So so the approach that I take, um, and it's not always feasible depending on on the complexity and scalability of a system. But for example, in in the Lend to Me database, I start with an empty sorry the Lend to Me code base. Each test starts with a clean database, and through through HTTP transactions, the data that's required for the test is is put into the database. So I know with absolute certainty that the system is functioning as I expect because I'm controlling all of those inputs. Yeah, and another thing that I find very difficult to test is like integration with third-party APIs. Like, so if part of the flow of my system reaches out to some third party. 
um, I, I really want people to start building third-party APIs with like a test flag or something in them. So they can almost run as if I'm in production, but just say, listen, this following transaction is just for testing purposes only. Like I, I don't want it to persist or something like that. Just so that I can like kind of cross that uh, integration boundary and come back and then test the like complete output, as you say, going further up the pyramid. Right. So, so one of the tools that I've been thinking about building for a while, and, and I think it in, exists in the in the Ruby world, and, and hopefully Kenneth will be able to help me. I've forgotten the name, but this idea of, well, especially using something like oh, and it's or Nancy even, it's it's pretty easy to to specify if you get this HTTP request, then return this HTTP response. Now the the problem there is. It, it kind of makes it a little bit easier to to test, but effectively what you're doing is you mark, you're still mocking out that dependence. Um, and the the potential problem there is, you know, there's this this mantra: don't mock what you don't what you don't own. Every mock is an assumption, and you're assuming that that's how the third party API works. So, um, I quite like that idea of a a testing flag, and and maybe you can help me build it into the the lend to me API. <laughs> yeah, you guys can look at Stripe. They apparently have a testing flag that you just, they don't have staging servers. So you just use a, a like an extra header or something it goes with and the transactions are not real. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'll find, see if I can find a, a, a link for that. I heard Jessica Kerr and the Ruby Rogues talk about it. And I thought that was quite interesting. Well, that, that would be perfect. I mean, we currently integrate with some accounting software and Man, I, I can't test it because it's always live. You know, I can't test whether, like, whatever happens out there is actually correct. Yeah, that is quite sucky. I know in the yes, in the Ruby world, it's difficult, Joshua, to put my finger on like any one of these things because they have so many tools, um, specifically for like intercepting HTTP requests and uh, building up all kinds of stuff. I've never liked them. Um, the one one that people would know is VCR, and that literally records your HTTP requests and the responses into cassettes, parks it off in your test directory as fixtures. So every HTTP request gets matched up to a cassette, and if it finds a cassette, it replays it as opposed to doing the live thing. But there you need this awkward dance of re-recording your episodes every once in a while. Um, so that's kind of tedious. Then there's another tool called Webmock, which um, allows you to um, like more programmatically do exactly the same thing. It's not parked off in YAML files. That one's a bit better, but it's still not nice. So <clears throat> what I've kind of done is uh, hopefully the third party, like the gems, they supply you with like a stub flag. I know the AWS SDKs, well, specifically the Ruby one. I don't know if they, other SDKs and other languages have the same thing, but you can pull it into your testing environment, then you switch it on to stubbing mode. And then you can say, like, I want all the success, all the requests to succeed, or I want this kind of failure to happen to test out the different things. And you kind of know that as an official SDK, they are looking after you. I mean, it's a huge leap of faith. And obviously, when they started doing that, I don't think it was smooth sailing. There must have been a lot of pain. That's one way to do it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. I guess at a high level, if you could get the providers of the APIs 
to play game uh, to play ball with you and i guess it counts in an organization as well with microservices is you can do this contract style testing where let's say like for instance with uh, lend to me you actually don't write the test for your api you just give a specification and then i write a front end um let's say in ember and i test the api in the way that i expect it to behave for my application and i can give you this set of specs and you can run it as part of your ci and then somebody else comes and they build a react front end um, or something that uses graphql for instance and they just want to they keep providing you with executable specifications from the consumer's point of view um, there's a great piece i think it's by martin fowler um, that explains this kind of contract testing and there's the thoughtworks have made some gems and other clients around getting this thing done but it's a huge i think it's a huge issue i mean it's one thing if your dependency is a database that you can just connect to in flash or a memcache that you can clear you know something you control it's this like reaching into like big payment systems or big cloud providers where things get really murky really quickly so there's yeah you know, i know of no silver bullet unfortunately so I really like that idea of, of, of contract testing and I've, I've kind of done both for Lend to me. I've got a, a kind of documented the API and have unit tests. And I've, I've looked into uh, Swagger, which is a bit difficult with Nancy. And I've also looked into um, there's a tool called Sol, uh, which basically turns markdown files into an API specification, which is pretty interesting. And there's another tool. Um, written in JavaScript, I can't remember the name of hand, but I will find it, which is also uh, an API testing tool. Um, but I like the idea of um, the, the kind of contract-based testing. Um, I want to mention that one of the cool things about being a .NET developer is uh, you don't not always build for choice like uh, the Ruby and Java guys, so it sometimes makes life a little bit easier. Is there anything in this testing that we didn't cover I mean, I guess the one thing is we kind of lightly touched on TDD early on and then jumped away from it. Um, I guess the one way to say is that there's not anything particularly wrong with TDD. I just want to say it's kind of what you said early on, the bang for your buck kind of thing that maybe that those super fine-grained... Actually, TDD could probably be the same thing at a much higher level. A functional test or an acceptance test can also serve as a write out the spec first. And no matter how many things are playing together, build out a test like that. So, so that's exactly it. So, so people talk about the difference between BDD, behavior-driven development, and acceptance test-driven development. Uh, personally, I see no distinction between them, and I don't see any value in distinguishing between them. The only difference is the granularity of the test. Um, but the, the spirit of let me specify the behavior of my system as an executable specification is exactly the same as all three, exactly the same across all three. It, the only difference is at what level, um, how far within or without my system am I? So actually, I, I try avoid using terms like BDD and ATDD, and I actually avoid try avoid uh, using terms like unit testing as well, to be honest. Uh, it's a test. I agree. Um, so maybe around that terminology, if you've got some advice for folks that's now hearing about all these different kind of testing, 
And you, for instance, we mentioned functional tests and acceptance tests, and they some other framework calls it regression testing. And the Rails world, it means completely different things a functional test to the Java world. Like, do you have like a some tips or some shorthand that people can just use when they look at these tests to help them identify the nature and the characteristics of the stuff to, I guess, just save them a little bit of pain? So for me, it, it kind of boils down to two things. One, who's the audience? Who's the stakeholder? So if you're the users, the stakeholder, then it's a functional test. Um, if developers are stakeholders, then it could be a lower level developer test or what we typically call unit test. Um, a, a product owner, for example, could be interested in load and performance testing. So, so it's useful to ask yourself, well, who, who is, who am I creating this test for? Who's interested in this result? Um, and I'm pretty confident in saying that, well, at least in my opinion, the, the user is the most important in that equation. Without a user, um, using our system, no other test makes it. Um, then there's the other part is the, the return on investment. How difficult is it going to be to, to create this test and what benefit am I getting out of it? So it might be a functional test and it might be very difficult to do a, a kind of full user level test because it's a, a, a graphical user interface, which typically come with uh, quite expensive and brittle tests. Well, if we're using, for example, an MVC framework, well, then don't test at the UI level, test at a controller level or test at the HTTP level, for example. Um, so, so who's your audience and, uh, what is the context? How quickly do these need to run? Um, what is the bang that I'm going to get for my buck? And how can I increase the bang or, and decrease the buck? Makes a lot of sense. Is there anything else we needed to cover? You think we skipped over or didn't mention at all? Um, there are a few things kind of that have popped into my head uh, now and then, but I think we, we have been a little bit scattered, but I think we've, we've covered... Uh, uh, quite a lot of important stuff. Um, so my kind of mantra is, um, especially in the beginning, test from the outside in, look at it from the user point of view and increase the bank for your buck. Awesome. Len, any questions from your side? Uh, one of the ones we had in the list was, when do you delete tests? We went through that one, but I think it's a, it's a good one to to just cover again. I think people might be too um, what's the word? Like, sentimental. <laughs> to delete that test that took them hours to write. So, so that's exactly, try reduce the amount of time you spend on your test so that you decrease the sunk cost fallacy as much as, as much as possible. Remember, all code is a liability. All code is inventory, it needs to be maintained. Um, if you've got tests running that you don't need to be running, they're slowing down your developers, they're slowing down your build cycle. Um, so the fewer tests you can get away with, the better, because there's overhead there, there's, there's cost. Um, so my kind of rule of thumb is if you're not getting any more information from a test that you're not getting from another test, so for example, we might have a, a user level or a controller level test in the MVC system that's giving us information and we've got a lower level test that's kind of with, uh, in that coverage, then um, that lower level test is a good candidate for deletion because it's not giving you any more information. So there's no return, but there's full investment, there's full cost. Um, and the other rule of thumb is um, if the test is no longer valid because the requirements have changed, the required behavior has changed, then um, it's a test because again, it's not, it's, 
giving you no more information, but it represents part. I must say, just on that point of uh, acceptance tests or high-level tests overlapping lower-level tests, I think I can probably go delete like three-quarters of all the tests I ever wrote. Um, so that's an interesting exercise, delete the test. Uh, you can always go back to them in your in your version control and and see how uncomfortable it makes you feel. Um, see how much confidence you have afterwards. Does it decrease your confidence? Does it increase your confidence? Does it increase? Does it give you a feeling of liberation because now you can refactor without bumping into all these extra obstacles that you don't need? Hmm. I'll I'll do that. I'll let you know how it goes. Cool. Um, just I'm looking at the, the 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 kind of list of things you wanted to discuss, and one of the, the the things we haven't covered is, you know, tests are code. Should they kind of get some amount of attention uh, as production code? Um, and my answer is they should get more attention. Um, and if you think about accounting, there's this this double ledger system that we use and we've been using for quite a while, um, and we use it because it works. And one of the reasons it works is because there's now two sources of truth. So I think it's, it's Martin Fowler who kind of uh, said that uh, Martin Fowler, Uncle Baba, I kind of forget now, but the idea is the truth is in the code. Um, and if we've got an executable specification, which we're running frequently to validate uh, that our system behaves as expected, we're running it frequently because it's cheap and fast to run, then we're just increasing the chances that our specification test are synchronized with our, with our code. Um, and that's another one of the reasons why natural language specifications aren't, aren't such a great format. It's very easy for them to, to, to become unsynchronized. And what effectively happens is if you've got a, a good automated test suite is you've now got two sources of truth. Uh, you've got the production code, but you've also got the, the specification tests which describe what's expected of your system. And the reason why I say that the test code might, uh, could be considered more important than your production code is your production code is actually just an, an implementation. It's a way of satisfying those, uh, that specification. And often, especially if you've got good tests, the intent behind your code is expressed better in the test than it is expressed in the implementation. So, for example, if we've got good tests, but maybe poorly written production code that was written in a hurry or, or whatever the case is, high amount of technical debt, for example, then we might just say, well, we've got the, we've got the test and it's of a sufficiently high level, so let's just delete the implementation and start again. And in that kind of context, your test code could be considered more important than your production code. That is awesome. <laughs> I'd love to be able to do that on a project. So, so for example, I'm, I'm kind, kind of trying to reinvent myself as a developer. So I've spent 10 years at C-Sharp, and the past couple of months, um, in fact, a bit longer, I've, I've felt like a dinosaur, right? You know, people talk about Angular and Ember and Node and Ionic, and I'm like, speak English, speak C-Sharp, that's what I understand. So I've spent the last uh, little while, especially the last two to three weeks, um, trying to delve into this kind of Node and front end, Bower and Ionic and Angular and, and all of those kinds of tools. Now, I've, I have specified the Lend to Me API um, as a set of tests. I would, uh, I've contemplated and it would be a very interesting exercise to rewrite the server in Node, for example, or Rails, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and the interesting thing is because I've got, because I've specified the API as test, I can guarantee that let's say a year from now, there are a whole bunch of clients, uh, that, that there's been, it's a very popular app and there are a whole bunch of clients. Um, and we're running into scaling issues, for example. I'm pretty confident that I could rewrite the server in Node, for example, and uh, one day just switch over and no client would notice any difference. That is a pretty neat characteristic to have. And if you talk about the contractors that you mentioned where the clients apply the test, well, I can kind of guarantee that even further. Um, just one thing I, I wanted to add, I, I forgot to mention earlier, Kenneth, you mentioned um, running smoke tests against a canary deployment. Now, for me, that that's just, you know, we're getting to the stage, that, that kind of thing just blows my mind, like press a button, um, deploy something, run a couple of tests against a canary server, and then, and then deploy it across a server farm. Now, that these days wouldn't be too difficult to do. And it's just like as part of a continuous delivery pipeline, that kind of thing just blows my mind how um, we're able to do those kinds of things these days. And I also wanted to mention earlier, Len, uh, I forgot to mention about, uh, we were talking about third-party APIs. Right. That's right. something where containerization starts getting really interesting for me. So we take the case, for example, an organization, any, any organization, uh, let's consider where we've got some kind of microservice uh, design. And you know, a classic scenario, I've worked in a couple of places where where team A depends on team B and sorry, product A depends on product B, but team B is actually developing product okay. B. Okay. And there's a there's a, a, a version in production, there's a version in, in staging and a development version. Now, if I'm a member on team A, I can choose to develop against the production deployment. Or I can develop against the staging version, or I can develop against the development version, and and there's kind of pros and cons for each of those. But let's say we're trying to deploy a new feature that that is dependent on things across Team A and Team B. So I must just mistake an aside and say if you're trying to be truly agile, then that doesn't represent the cross-functional team. Um, so coming back to the main point, what containerization starts uh, opening up for me is Team B could say, well, we're just going to give you a Docker image um, for our for our staging issue for our staging version, and you can um, push it up and tear it down as much as you like. You own it. You you uh, kind of um, what's the word? Um, you you own that that instance. Um, now imagine if um, the the accounting software you use said, listen. Um, here's a test image. Here's a, a Docker image for our for our full API. Comes with a with a database. Uh, deploy it in your own infrastructure. Uh, go wild. Um, it's exactly the same as our production deployment. And when we do deploy something, when we do deploy a new feature, we'll give you a new image. Um, for me, that's what's opening up really, really interesting possibilities. Yeah, yeah, because I can kind of simulate the. It's it's again back to that idea of cloning production back to testing but in this case i can get so much more i guess it always boils down to at the end of the day having a good uh, set of test data that i can supply those images with but it definitely eliminates yeah. the need for me to 
or, or it makes it much easier for me to replicate the, the production build environment. And so, yeah. Absolutely. So, um, and that's yeah. the promise of the, the containerization is that our, our kind of, we're giving you a copy of, so we're not giving you our data, obviously, because that would um, be problematic, but we're giving you exactly the same code and some reference data that exists in our production deployment. Right. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I think that's uh, been a very interesting evening. Is there anything else you want to add in particular? Anything you think we've missed? So one of the reasons why I, I kind of made the code base for Lend to Me uh, open source is to to as a vehicle for debate. So um, often at community events or Twitter conversations, and and also during my lectures. You know, we talk about concepts, but it's without a code base, it becomes, it's a very abstract, very conceptual, and, and it's quite hard to, to talk across purposes. So what I'd, what I'd like people, um, to do is if we'll, we'll include the link in the fix, but if they could look at, at the, the, the test, um, in the lend to me code base, I'd love to get people's opinions and use them as a vehicle to, to, for collective learning. If we can kind of all learn and, Increase the state of the art, increase our understanding together. Yeah, that's great. And I, I'm sure I want to encourage people to go and look at that code. It's very interesting. I interesting is an interesting <laughs> word. <laughs> it's definitely worth reading. Let's put it that way. Uh, good to hear. Cool. Cool. So <clears throat> I guess with, um, with all that out the way, thanks, Joshua. I mean, we covered a lot of ground. I've got pages of notes to prove it, even though it might have been a bit scattered all over the place um yeah we'll definitely link to everything you said in the in the show notes including lend to me and your blog posts and all that so i guess um it's time we do some picks then do you have any picks for us um just been doing a lot of reading around uh relational and logic programming and uh, there's some just some great videos i'll drop them in the show notes if people want to look up uh, look at them, uh, but also the, there is a an implementation of something called Mini Canron in Scheme, which is very very interesting. The guys in the demo build a little example language, and then their their logic engine can generate programs in that language, and it's it's kind of super interesting how simple that is. So I'll, I'll drop the link in the show notes for you guys. Cool. Thanks, Josh. Anything for from your side? Um. I don't have any picks per se, just uh, an interesting tweet I, uh, I saw the other day just about logic programming. Um, something around the lines of, you know, pros and cons of uh, logic programming. Pros, pros. Cons, <laughs> cons. Yeah, that, that's no. a pun. Cool, thanks. I mean, you gave us a lot of resources in any case. I'll just throw them in the, in the list. Um, yeah, then from my side... Um, yeah, I think I've been a bit lazy with the picks, but as we went through the show, I kind of remembered about this Pacto project from ThoughtWorks. It's that contract testing implementation that they've got. It's got a Ruby gem uh, that you can use, but it's also got a Pacto server that you can use with non-Ruby clients. If you want to bash out these contract style tests, I'll add a note for that to the show notes. Cool, guys. Um, again, thank you so much for spending so much time with us and I really hope everybody enjoyed it um, until our next episode. Um, yeah. Thanks everyone. Remember to follow us on Twitter, 
where ZA Dev Chat, Facebook, Google Plus as well. Subscribe and iTunes, leave a rating. Yeah, we've got the Slack channel, so just drop in there and let us know what you think. Yeah, yeah definitely. And uh, just a reminder, on Fridays for the next few weeks, we're going to be releasing all the shows on SoundCloud. So depending on your podcast app, it may or may not show up. I think for the it's a minority of people that might get old episodes that were hosted somewhere else. So we apologize for that, or you can just enjoy like reminiscing all times. Cool. Thanks, everyone. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Joe. My pleasure. Thank you for a wonderful evening, guys. Take care.